If you have your Bibles, open them with me, would you, to Romans chapter uh, 15. And we're in our series in Romans, and we are coming down to the final, the final words here. You know, um, as we've gone through Romans, we've been able to take a careful look at Paul's letter to the church. And Paul has a lot to say. In fact, in the first uh, few chapters there, the first eight chapters, we were feeling pretty heavy-handed, weren't we? Chapters 1 through 11 really is like the head of Christianity. It's kind of the theology and getting our head around it. But chapters 12 through 15, 12 through 16 really is the heart of Christianity. It's about us loving one another unconditionally and caring about one another as the family of God. That is important. And I want to talk about some things, and I want to uh, speak to us this morning about three basic things that Paul says in this, this vast section of scripture we're going to read in Romans chapter 15. The first one is I want to back up a little to last week with this statement, unity in spite of you. Unity in spite of you. Now what does that mean? Paul says a lot of in spite of you's in this section of scripture. And what he is saying is that this is what God wants no matter what you're doing. In spite of you, this is God's best for you. And how do we practice unity in the midst of diversity when we have so many opinions about different things? And this is what we dealt with last week. The fact is that we all draw different lines in our lives about some stuff. Christianity is not a cult. Not everybody's as good looking as me and dressed as well. So, just kidding. That was a joke. It was badly written. Badly timed. Um, but we, we don't all dress the same, we don't talk the same, we all, we all don't have those things that are similar, and that's good, that would be a cult. Um, but it's our belief in Jesus and our relationship with each other that draws us together. And Paul deals with some stuff that he calls really stupid arguments. He says, you guys are arguing about holy days, you're arguing about um, this kind of thing, and, and this is not good, about eating meat or drinking wine. Um, and there's a lot to that, so make sure to look at last week's message if you want. Everything's online, but there's a lot more. And in real practical sense, this is what it means. There are some Christians that believe we need to be only using real wine in communion rather than grape juice because that's exactly the way Jesus did it. And if you don't do it that way, you're doing it wrong. How many have a friend that said to you, if you've been baptized in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, you've done it wrong. You should only be baptized in the name of Jesus. That's the way the New Testament church did it. Even though, and you're going like, well, I got wet. I, you know. And yet, there are some people that divide. Maybe you have a friend that said something like, hey, if you don't worship on Saturdays, it's the real Sabbath. Even though the early church been the first day of the week, we meet together, we worship together, then you're doing your faith wrong. I'm sure you've had a friend like that. Maybe you've heard this. What version of the Bible you read? If you're not reading the King James Version of the Bible, you're doing it wrong. I'm sure you've heard this one. Unless you speak in tongues, you're not going to heaven. Mm-hmm. You're like, well, I believe in Jesus. I love Jesus. I want more of Jesus. I'm not opposed, right? But... They say, I'm doing it wrong. How many have had another Christian tell them that unless you do street evangelism and you accost people and hold them prisoner, you're not doing evangelism? <laughs> How many have heard another Christian say that unless your church is singing right out of the hymn book and they're, they're quoting, they're singing the Psalms with maybe no musical instruments, well, then you're doing it wrong. And you're like, well, 
We sing about Jesus, and I love Jesus, so what's the big rip-de-ding-dong? In fact, I have a, a friend recently, and she went, I want a church that sings hymns that doesn't paint any walls black. And I'm like, well, that's pretty specific. Um, I feel kind of, uh, you know, we do these things to hide the cables, cords, and the video. That's really the reason that that wall is black. If you, want, if you really wanted to know, it has nothing to do with the blackness of all of our hearts. It really doesn't have anything to do with that. Either. There's no spiritual connotation to the color of the wall, right? And yet people divide over the craziest things. And, and, and maybe you've, you've had other Christians say that unless you do this or that or, or have these changes or you do church this way, then you're doing things wrong. You're a compromiser, right? And this is exactly what Paul is dealing with. That along with all kinds of other things or the very words that Paul uses, these things are unimportant because they cause division and not unity and love. I'm doing it right. You're doing it wrong. So I can't be your friend. Furthermore, I can't even go to church with you and be in fellowship with you because you don't do these things that are unimportant. And so the question is that there are lines that are, that are important though, right? I mean, there are other things that are not important. God's purpose for his church is unity in spite of how we try to mess it up. And so what he says in the first part of chapter 15 is, that there's, for example, somebody takes a, a circle and a piece of chalk on the pavement and they draw a line and they stand inside of it. And those who step out the circle, this is what he talks about in Romans chapter 16. Paul says that this is not good. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, in chapter 16, verse 17, jumping ahead a little bit, to watch out for those who cause division, right, and create obstacles contrary to what? The doctrine you have been taught, avoid them. Doctrine is important. We preach through the Bible here on purpose. And I appreciate ministries and pastors that can take a topic, and, and we do that from time to time. We're getting ready to do some of that this summer um, and later July and August. But we preach through the Bible mostly, and we go through the Bible because there's a lot of doctrine in the Bible. And our hope in life is that we want to be more like Jesus, amen? That, that is the goal. That is the purpose. And the more we understand and we learn about his word and understand his word, we learn how God relates to men and, and how he reacts to certain things. We learn the things that God loves, and we learn about the things that God hates. And we begin to see the character of God. And as the Holy Spirit works in us through the word of God, we begin to develop appetites like God, and our desires actually change. And we become content with other stuff rather than the junk that's constantly being fed to us by the world. And there's some people working for unity and there's others that work for division. There are some Christian denominations that work for unity and others for division. And we know that there are lines for being a Christian, right? And these are very important. There's one God eternally existing in three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you're outside of those, relying, outside of those lines, you're outside of Christianity, period. If you don't believe the Bible, you've crossed the line. If you don't believe in Jesus, you have lived, who lived and died for your sin, you've crossed the line. If you don't believe that Jesus is the only way to salvation, he is the only road, now you've crossed the line. And you're in another religion, literally. There are lines that are clearly, clearly drawn in Scripture, and I've just touched the surface, but there's two ways this happens. One, you never accepted 
you never really believed the Bible was true and you, we don't accept Christ as Lord or God and, 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 or at once you were a Christian and began to take and add all kinds of other stuff to your faith. And that happens a lot. I've put all kinds of other things on board. Rather than being in a group of believers to mold you and shape you, we go outside of maybe those believers or outside of that loyal to the word body of Christ and find another fellowship that will draw our attention to other things rather than really the concepts and principles of the Bible. There are lines that are clearly drawn. And one of these ways happens, and when we cross the line, what usually happens for both of those is apostasy or complete walking away from the faith. And today there are those that are so religious that they have taken relationship with Jesus out of the focus and just determined that if you break the rules, you're out. It's a big Greek word. This is really a complicated word to pronounce. Sin. Okay, that's just it. If you say, I have the rules, I'm doing it right, everybody else is wrong, blah, 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 and if you don't like the color of carpet, then I'm coming down on you. Or if you receive communion differently, and it, it, it still means the body and blood of Christ, if you, if you speak in tongues and I don't, then uh, you know what? You're out of line. Because God calls us to unity. The other one, the line that people cross is taking up a social justice in our world, the social Jesus, the woke Jesus, right? And created an entire generation of young people that think they know more than God. They already know more than their parents. How many parents know this? Your teenager knows more than you, right? Oh, man, if I only knew when I was a teenager the kind of ridiculous nonsense, I thought I knew more than my father. My mother, oh, I know more, I know better. My, they bought me these brand new pair of jeans, man. They're brand new. You know, back in the day, and they, they're doing, starting to do it now, where they've got blotches of, you know, white, and they're torn in places, and that's the cool look, right? Um, so I thought, oh, I want to be like, you know, like, I don't know how much mom and dad paid for these jeans, and they kept buying me clothes, and I kept tearing them up, and I put them in the sink, poured a little bleach in, and then, you know... Going like this and rub them out, let them dry, didn't I, Mom? And it had big old holes. And, and Dad's like, what's wrong with your pants? Didn't we just buy those pants? And I'm like, I don't know. I was trying to wash them. I was lying. I was trying to wash them. You know? they, you know, they, just, they just came out like Moses. Said, I'll, or Aaron, I'll pop this calf kind of thing, right? <laughs> we always think we know more than Mom or Dad. We're always so much smarter. We can do this. We're going to do that. I can't wait to get out of the house. And what I didn't know, especially the food. Oh, goodness, I miss the food. And I would go with moms all the time and eat their food. And I'm just sorry, but anyone that doesn't know how to make their bed, brush their teeth, and pay taxes for at least 10 years should be quiet. Amen. Then there are those that stay inside the circle. So there are those outside, they think they know more. And they think they're better, or they know more, because they're, you know, like the teenage brat, right? We've all been there. Then there are others out inside the lines, and they love Christ. And we come from different denominations, we come from different places, we like different music, that's for sure. We join together in prayer and fellowship, though. We join together in prayer and fellowship. And there's some with Lutheran history, some with Presbyterian history, 
some Baptists, some Pentecostals, and even some Calvinists in this very room. Even, even, even Calvinists. Yes, I know how hard that is to believe, but that's right. So Romans chapter 14 and verse 1, I'm going to back up a little bit before we get going. Or this is just the introduction, by the way. So Paul says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. The difference is God's doctrines and opinions. We don't cross the lines of God's doctrine. We want to uphold them, but we should not argue over stupid opinions, right? Amen. Some people make their opinions doctrine, but with God, his opinion is doctrine. So this is where we find ourselves, because Paul is teaching us that we need to find the common ground, and we need to stay inside that circle with one another in the fellow, when we're in fellowship with one another. These lines are really important, and, 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 and dismiss the things that don't matter. And then we take those into account. We need to evaluate if we're crossing the line that God has drawn or if we can simply stay inside of it, letting go of the insignificant things. Crossing the line means crossing into sin. If you move in with your boyfriend, you've crossed into sin. If you get drunk, you've crossed in the line into sin, right? It says not to drink wine, but that's true. But it says specifically drunkenness is sin, and we dealt with that broadly last week. Let me add this, especially in light of this day and age. We have compassion for women who have gone through and had abortions in their life. We understand the pain it causes. This church supports ministry specifically that counsels and helps and helps to restore those women. But you created, the Bible says in Psalm 139, me and my inmost being. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. If you're calling for the murder of an unborn life, you've crossed the line into sin. That's just the way that it is. The power of God's grace is that if you cross the line and repent of sin, he welcomes you, us back. And he draws us back just into his arms. He loves us no matter where we've been or what we've done. When we do that, we're able to come back inside that fellowship and worship together. We understand that we all sin and we've all crossed the line. And God allows us to come back across that line back into his grace. Amen. His grace is more than enough. More than enough. Paul makes a point that there are those that are stronger than others in different areas. There are guys who can be friends with girls that don't flirt with them and sleep around. That's good. There are some who can have a drink and don't cross the line of being drunk. And so Paul finishes with this big idea in verse number 7 of chapter 15 in Romans. He says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ welcomed you. Isn't that great? For the glory of God. So our fellowship, our unity is for the glory of God. That we meet together, we have different opinions about the things that don't matter, but we stick to the things that we agree on and we hold them fast. Unity above all else. Unity in spite of you and in spite of me. Amen. The second thing he preaches, he talks to us about in verse 8, unity uh, or in, grace in spite of us. God's grace is sufficient. Let's read from verse 8, Romans chapter 15. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the uncircumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. 
And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, and when he arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. Now, I want to stop for a second because um, sometimes people have called and asked me, Pastor, I don't understand this. What is this talking about? If you go back just not that many weeks ago, we, we went at length that this whole series has really been about the Jews' position and who they felt they were. They had a piousness about them because through them was coming the promised Messiah, the root of Jesse, Jesus. That was Jesus. That's what the Bible's talking about there. It's a prophecy concerning generations that Jesse, through him, through his line, through Jesse and then David, there would be uh, Jesus and the Messiah. He would be the one. So the Jews had this kind of uh, piety about them. They looked down on everyone else because they had the promise of God. We are the children of promise. We are the ones. And Paul deals with it at length because he's talking to a, a, a Gentile church mostly in Rome that the Jews have come in and the Jews are kind of like, well, we're the promised ones. But yet Jesus says the foot of the cross is leveled. Everyone Gentile, which is everyone else, and Jews are all, can all come into relationship with God because Jesus became the eternal sacrifice for all mankind. And so he deals with this at length. So just to bring that um, to us. But Paul takes this idea of unity one big step forward. And he does this by saying that Jesus came as a Jew, <laughs> as a servant to the Jews, and through that form, Cross the bridge to all people. Now, some didn't like this, right? Because he comes and all Gentiles, all of us, every person that's just not a Jew. That means everybody else. And it basically says that through that people, through those proud, obstinate people, Paul's writing to this church with Jewish believers and Gentile believers, the power of the message is through the very religious, he will bring this message of grace. We're not religious we're saved. We are becoming more like Christ, and that makes us like different things. Some may start labeling that as religious, and let me tell you, it's getting more and more dangerous as we walk in this world today. The culture in America is, anim is such animosity against the things that people are, we want to become like. As we strive to be more like Christ, the world is opposed to that in a lot of its thinking and ways. But Paul takes this big step of unity here, and he says that this is important. And he's writing to these believers, and he says at this very message that basically all of this is because of grace. Now, grace is enormous. Grace is powerful. Grace is unending and all-encompassing. It is an offense. Grace is an offense. Grace is offensive to the very religious because it takes their power away. Amen. Well, I am religious. I go to church on Sunday. I teach a class. I give. I tithe. I, I'm committed to being on this group and this team. And I'm going to serve at Summerfest. And I lead this group. And I do that. And blah, 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 blah. And we do all of these things. And so we're strutting around with all of our religious dues. That we're so good. We served at the, at the, at the CareNet Crisis Pregnancy Center once a week. And we, we fast once a week. We do all these things. We're very religious. And Jesus comes in and he says to the Jews, basically, all of that, just forget about it. Because he fulfilled the requirements of the law. 
Here's the interesting thing. He reverses their thinking because they think they're saved through their religiosity. And he tells them that because of grace you're saved, then now you're becoming more like me. It's a road. It's a journey that we're all taking. And don't be one of those Christians that gets older and never grows up. It's one of those processes we have to take as we walk. We're becoming more like Jesus, and there's going to be things that we're going to start not doing because we have a new appetite now, and God will begin to shape that. Grace is offensive to the religious. It takes their power away. It confronts the religious and the pious and all the rules and regulations and says salvation is earned rather than received. You don't have to be raised in church to receive grace. You don't have to be highly educated in doctrine to receive grace. You don't have to have a lot of money to receive grace. Salvation, becoming a Christian, is by believing in Jesus and letting him work in you. God hasn't called us just to save us and then stop there. Salvation is ongoing. This work called sanctification is a work that God does in salvation on every level. You aren't just safe for eternity, friends. You're safe for the right now. I love the name of our church, Abundant Life Church. Hallelujah. He's come to give life and life more abundantly. So grace, in spite of you and in spite of your best efforts, is what he says. Secondly, grace is an offense to those who are not Christians because they don't understand how grace can be free. How in the world is that possible? This is big, right? I mean, how many people would give someone forgiveness and grace if they spat in your face, sinned against you constantly, distanced themselves from you? You may not give them any grace. It might be beyond you. At what point would it be beyond you? If you, if you, if you hurt someone, if you really hurt their family, if you really hurt their children, if you really hurt them in some way, you took from them, you abused them, and they forgave you, what would you do with that? If they welcomed you then into their home and served you a meal and, and, and gave you the best seat at the table, you're like, oh, this is a trap. This is a trick. There, there, there's something wrong with this scenario. You see, this kind of grace is beyond what we're able to give. It's, it's, it's like loving your abusers and those that hurt you and receiving them back as friends. It's like, mm, how could I do that? Because the Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. While we were still sinning against Christ, while we were still making him our enemy, while we were still abusing him because we walked in our own pride and selfish ways and our arrogance and all that stuff, Christ still loved us. And he still gave his life for you, friends. That is unbelievable. How can we stand back and say, how could this be free? How could God love me and take me back? People far from God can't comprehend this kind of grace. And I'll tell you why. Because there's been so many hurts sometimes in life and people, and I've seen this once, if I've seen it a thousand times. It's difficult for them to receive this free grace because it takes one big thing to come to Christ. The biggest thing that you could ever give. It requires something. Salvation just isn't some prayer repeated after me. Salvation is I am willing to surrender. I am willing to lay down everything and say, God, I am nothing. I am willing to put down my hurts, my pain, my right to get back. I am willing to lay all that down because of grace. 
And we come to Christ, and that surrender is tough for people because surrender means giving up, right? We have to give up our right to get back. We have to give up our right to be angry. We have to give up our right to all these things, our emotions that we so love. I've known people that just enjoy being angry. It's like I'm around them all the time, and they're always mad about something. I'm like, you have a problem. When we come to Christ, we have to surrender those. And the good thing about it is God doesn't dump all that on us at once. Aren't you glad he doesn't say, hey, arrive at this overnight? He takes us where we are, no matter who we are, at our pace. And a loving God holds us by the hand and says, I know you're hurting. I know your loss. I know your pain. I know your suffering. I know your abuses. And I understand that. But life is more than what you've known. And giving up control, because we like to be in charge, is oftentimes why repentance never comes. Because as we let go, we begin to realize that God's grace is huge. And sometimes we don't like to let go. Every time I think about what God has done for me, I'm overwhelmed. Sometimes when I hear a song on the radio about the cruel cross, and what Christ endured on that cross because he loved me, I tell you, sometimes I feel like i got to pull over because I'm overwhelmed. I can't handle it. I begin to have different appetites about the things in this world. I begin to, I'm undone. I'm like Jeremiah. I'm undone. Isaiah, I mean, I'm undone. I, I can't handle anymore. God, help me. It's hard to comprehend, friends, me, about anybody in this life, in this world, as I encounter people and talk to people that are far from God. I don't know how they live without relationship with Jesus. Amen. I find it difficult to comprehend. I, I've had interviews with atheists. I've paid them to come in my office and record our conversation because I want to know what makes them tick. How do they survive without talking to Jesus every morning? How do they survive without understanding something new from his word daily? How do they understand or how do they go through life without that fellowship of the Holy Spirit that's so precious and sweet? I don't even know how people do it. What do they rely on? How do they rely on their own laurels so much that they're just going to make it through and hope God greets them in the end? How can we know the truth and, and not realize the good vastness of the power of the grace of God? I'm undone. A life without such compassion and love, I couldn't know. I don't know how any of this to live any other way. And I'm grateful for my upbringing that I was raised in it. But friends, this isn't just about an upbringing. This is about a work of grace that God does in spite of how old we are, how young we are. And so, you know, the statistic, the statistic is true that 85% of people come to Christ before they're 18 years old. Because as we get older, we put a lot of junk in our lives. Amen. We begin adopting all kinds of stuff and beliefs about things that are nuts. Amen. And we begin relying on that. You know? Oh, well... Verse number 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope, hope, hope in spite of you. Hope is really the key, isn't it? Without hope, there's no purpose, and without purpose, there's no drive to accomplish anything. I have this huge book in my library. It's, it's pretty thick and it's pretty big. I couldn't find it. I, I think I put it in my office at home, but I did find the picture. 
And here's the picture. It's a photograph, the greatest photographs of the 20th century. And the photographer's name is Kevin Carter. He was traveling the Sudan, taking account of the, fam the famine that had ravaged the land. It was a terrible time in the, the early, uh, late 70s, early 80s. A place so cruel that it just consumed everything. You dropped a piece of bread on the ground or something, and the ants just immediately devoured it. The land was just cruel. And the people equally as so because there was no food. And this famous picture he took is called The Struggling Child. And he saw this child in many instances. This is just one, as we understand his account, that he saw where people were being eaten or fed to animals so that they could have the animals to eat. The famous picture he took was all over the world. And he saw this child and this vulture just waiting to pounce, which he said eventually did. The cheapness of human life was so evident in that place during that time, he won a Pulitzer Prize for the feature photography. Two months after winning the prize, he took his own life. Some of his comments to his friends were, I can't imagine a life without any hope. If, life, if this is all there is, then life really is hopeless. It sounds like the mantra of our atheists today. You know, Webster says hope is a desire combined with expectation. But I want to derive for us a biblical definition. Hope is reliance on God's blessing and provision. The expectation of future good that it produces. So that when I am living for Christ, I have an anticipation of future good. I have an anticipation of future joy. I have an anticipation of future contentment. Look what the Bible says hope produces. Hope produces purity. 1 John 3, 3. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself. Hope gives us patience. Romans 8, 25. If we have hope for what we don't have, we wait for it patiently. Hope brings courage. Romans 5, 4. Perseverance, character, and character Hope. Hope brings joy. Romans 12, 12. Be joyful in hope. In hope. Hope brings salvation. Romans 8, 23. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons and redemption of our bodies. I can't wait. I can't wait. I'm out of here. Much as I love my Wife and my kids and my family and my church family and my motorcycles. I'm out of here. I'm gone. Hope, the Bible says, brings salvation. Romans 8, 23. Not only so, but we are first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait for the adoption of sons. It brings assurance. Hebrews 6, 18. The Bible says, God said, it disappeared. There it goes. Technology. The Bible says in Hebrews, where am I at? Let's start from the beginning again. In Hebrews, let me quote the scripture to you. I know it's on the tip of my tongue. I'm so glad that hope brings assurance. It's in these notes. It's in these notes somewhere. It brings assurance. The only reason is because I don't want to lose our outline here for the online people. 
Uh, hope brings assurance. Hebrews 6.18, God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It secures the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. A hope. We have an assurance. I'm so grateful that I don't walk through life without an assurance of relationship with Christ, fullness of life in Christ, and the hope of future glory. When I consider this life, this life isn't it. I am grateful that the Bible says that those who believe in Jesus are saved and they're going to heaven. But the scripture also says on that day, and when we get to heaven, that the Father himself is divvying out the rewards for serving Christ. He's giving out the rewards. And Paul says some people are going to get to heaven by the skin of their teeth. I mean, they're going to come through the fire. They're just going to make it. Man, I don't want to be one of those people. I get on my deathbed and that's all hope of making it to heaven. No way, Jose. And the Bible says believing in Jesus is the thing that brings us salvation. That believing starts a life change. And I want to be a disciple of him. I have this assurance. Having hope in Christ brings stability. (laughs) Colossians 1.23, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, have become servant. So he says that there is a, a stability, there is an establishment, a firm foundation that you have. We don't have to wander through life looking for this or that. Hope is the greatest gift that God offers. Can you imagine going through life without knowing Christ? I mean, I really don't know how people do it. It takes more faith to be an atheist than it does to follow Jesus. And it would, it would be like never realizing there's more to life. Wait, that's what it would be like. It'd be like only living uh, for what we can see and touch and feel and hear and, and, and taste right now. Wait. That's what it would be like. It would be like getting up and going to work, doing the laundry, working for the weekend always, and waking up and starting it all over again. That would be just like that. Well, that's what it would be like. It would be like not having any security about what comes after this life. Wait, that's what it would be like. It would be like facing life just one more moment for one more memory, one more time, without anything more. Wait. That's what it would be like. It's tough to imagine life without Christ, without real hope, without real purpose, without anticipation of the glory of God and, and revealed in our life and with Christ right now and walking in fellowship and having the peace and security that he brings no matter what happens. And yet we do our very best to undermine God's gift of hope in our culture, in our world. We have this great weapon as believers in our arsenal. It's called hope. It brings all of these things, assurance and joy and purpose and direction, security. Uh, God gives so many things through hope. Hope produces a lot of stuff. And we have this great thing in our arsenal, and we pull it out often. And I would be so bold as to say that Christians, sometimes we are the worst offenders when it comes to not using this weapon or having hope. We're packing the weapon of worry all the time. Worry is the thing that we carry around and just wait for the threat of hope to arise so we can use it against it. (laughs) Yeah, God, but, well, sure, I know what your word says, but, 
I know the power of prayer, but... Philippians 4, 4, right? Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God passes, which surpasses, I'm sorry, I'm quoting King James, reading NIV, or ESV, surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is commendable, or whatever is lovely, whatever is pure and lovely and commendable, whatever is excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about those things. Well, you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice all this, and the peace of God will be with you. This is the greatest hope that Christians have. A few times a week, I go and have a burrito made by a group of gals in a certain restaurant, and they make it for me, and I, they know me, and I go in there, oh, same thing, Larry? Yeah. And I always say, Dios te bendiga, gloria a Dios. Maybe I, so we're talking, I'm learning some of the new uh, workers' names. And, and, and when I go in there, I find it uh, kind of amazing that they already know what I want, right? They have this sort of relationship with me. And I bring them Christmas cards every Christmas, and they can't wait to see me. And It's kind of fun, you know? And I have discovered that over time, some of them have come to me, and they have said, Will you pray for me? Will you pray for my family? Will you pray for my mother? We're having problems with immigration. And I rejoice. There is something they see that is beyond what a smiling social worker will bring. There is a hope. I'm imperfect. I am not like, I haven't made it. I am just like you. We are the church. This is, though, what we live for. This is our hope that rather than anxiety, we can come to Christ and we can wait on him till he touches us. Sometimes we come to the altar, we bring our big list of requests, and we cry, we cry out to God, and then, and, and then we just pick it up right with us and take it back. Jesus. Instead of leaving it right there. And we need to wait sometimes in those moments with God until we have a breakthrough. Until he touches us. As Charles Finney says, if you don't feel God touching you when you pray, pinch yourself so you cry. In other words, what he is saying, wait on God until it hurts. Keep pressing in. Because, friends, the Lord is there. Remember that old song? Reach out and touch the Lord as he passes by. You'll find he's not too busy to hear your heart's cry. He is passing by this moment your needs to supply. Reach out and touch the Lord as he goes by.
He's always going by. God's presence is always available. He died on the cross. He said it is finished. It is finished. His spirit has been poured out. There's no problem with the broadcaster. There's only something with the receiver. Philippians 4 says, do not worry. And that Greek word means to be pulled in different directions. The, anxious, the word is anxious. And our hope is in Christ. Our fears pull us in opposite directions and we're pulled apart. The old English root word that we get from the word worry means to strangle. <laughs> like, I got, there's hope. I'm going to strangle it, you know. There's Christ. I'm going to strangle him out of my life. I'm going to strangle the Holy Spirit. I'm going to quelch his presence or his great love toward me. I'm going to ignore his word. I'm going to ignore his house. I'm going to ignore his, his people. I'm going to ignore everything he has to say. If you've ever really worried, you know how it does. It strangles a person. In fact, worry has physical consequences. Did you know that? Headaches, neck pain, uh, uh, ulcers, all these pains are associated with uh, through the body, physically, worry affects our thinking, our digestion, and even our coordination. Worry is wrong thinking, the mind, and wrong feelings, the heart, about circumstances, people, and things. Worry is the greatest thief of hope and joy. It's not enough for us to simply tell ourselves to quit worrying and be happy because that will never uh, capture the thief. Worry is an inside job, and it makes more than good intentions to get victory. The antidote to, to worry is the secure mind. The Bible says in the scripture, and the peace of God, the scripture we just read, Philippians 4, will keep, it'll put a garrison. That's what that means. A garrison like a soldier around your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus, Philippians 4, verse 7. You want God to set up a garrison of soldiers around your mind? Praise God, around your heart. Uh, the, when, you, when, you're, when you have a, the secure mind, the peace of God guards you, it says, and the God of peace guides you. In verse 9, what kind of protection would that be, man? That would, then you'd really be singing it, right? Don't worry, be happy. <laughs> Unity in spite of you and me. Grace in spite of you and me. And hope. In spite of you and me. Why does Paul instruct the church about unity, grace, and hope? What's the reason? Well, he does it. He winds up. He's like a good wind-up. He's got it. He's ready to do the strikeout now. Here it comes in verse 14. Read this with me. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all kindness and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by the way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, to the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to the Gentiles, to obedience by word and deed. He's saying, guys, you got to accept the Gentiles. They're coming to Christ, and they are part of the church. Verse 19, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way through Illyrium, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And this I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone's foundation, 
But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. That's the reason he reminds them of this stuff about unity in the church, about the grace of God in the church, and about the hope of Christ. The reason for all of that, for those who are far from God, to be in right relationship with him. That's why Paul says, I minister. The people would experience the hope that there is in Christ and the life to come. You know, those family members you have that are bound and determined to go to hell. We have them, right? They see the line, but they shy away from it. Your obnoxious cousin who says, bless God, I don't need no organized religion. Right? You've got them. They stay outside the line. Your friends who have stepped outside the line of God's grace. Your unbelieving friends who stay close to the line but never come inside the line. Your Christian friends who have been hurt by the church and now use it as an excuse. And I don't undermine that. I know that there are those who have been hurt by the church. And, and the Bible says it's better that a millstone would tie it around the neck of the one that causes one of these to stumble and fall away from faith. So the further judgment is on the one who didn't extend grace. Those that use the line itself as an excuse, never realizing God's grace. I don't want to step in that line. There's, you guys got too much stuff going on. Those who feel unworthy to come inside, even close to the line. We know those as well, don't you? Those who, whose failures are so great, they don't know how in the world they could be loved and been given grace, so they stay away from that line. So this is the reason God gives us the message of unity, because the world will know we belong to Jesus by our love for one another. Amen. If there's no division... And the unified body of Christ is loving one another and caring for one another. You know what's so beautiful about our church? I'll call somebody who might be going through a hard thing or something, and three or four of you have already called them. I'll go to one to visit them in the hospital. Oh, so-and-so's been by already. Maybe I'm just late getting to the Paul park. I don't know. <laughs> grace. The reason Paul gives us the message of unity is that, but the message of grace, because the very religious and the lost can't fully understand grace. There's two sides of this big coin, and neither one of them understand it fully. And the reason Paul gives us the message of hope is because we're Christ's ambassadors in this world, and we carry around that message. And friends, I got to say, if your heart is happy, smile, right? I always tell people, uh, my boys, uh, smile. It improves your face. <laughs> it just does, right? You know, the hope you have in Christ, friends, is in spite of what you're going through. We're all going through stuff, right? But I find that if I can put hope on and understand the hope of Christ, I can wear a smile even though I may be battling through something. It may be difficult. Sharing the amazing love of God. Unity in spite of you and me. In me. Grace in spite of you and me. And hope in spite of you and me. Paul says, hey, this is what God has in mind for you to be like and do.